Open your Bibles with me, please, to Matthew chapter 22, and let's make a brief review of where we went this morning. Matthew chapter 22. I want to finish our study against preterism. Preterists being those people that say all Bible prophecies were fulfilled in 70 A.D., that the second coming of Jesus Christ, that the resurrection of the dead, that the great day of judgment, that the new heavens and the new earth, that all those things and more were fulfilled in 70 A.D. And we're going to finish that study today and we want to wrap it up by considering a few smaller arguments against it compared to the five that we've already looked at over the last several weeks. In Matthew 22, we have Jesus in the first verse answering and speaking against the chief priests and Pharisees of verse 45 of the previous chapter with parables. And we have an extended parable here from verse 1 through verse 14. And it's important to us because it shows us the division between those events that did happen in 70 A.D. and those events that have not yet happened. And so it's an important parable to us. Now the Lord introduces this parable by the parable that He gave in Matthew chapter 21, which is the parable of the householder. It starts in verse 33 and it runs through the end of that chapter in which Jesus Christ taught that His church, His vineyard, that that He owned as the householder, and had hedged it about and blessed it abundantly and given it to the Jews, and He left it, And he was looking for some fruit from his vineyard. He was looking for some fruit from the Old Testament church. And he wasn't getting much. So he sent prophets to them to warn them. And they mistreated those prophets. And they killed some of those Old Testament prophets. And then in the parable, he says in verse 37, I will send my son. Surely they will reverence my son. In Matthew 21, 37. But when the husbandman... That is the servants, that is the Jews that had the care of the church of God of the Old Testament saw the son, they said, this is the heir, let's kill him, then the vineyard will be ours. And so they killed the son of God and slew him in verse 39. And then Jesus asks a question of the chief priests and Pharisees in verse 40, when the Lord therefore of the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto those husbandmen? They say unto him in verse 41, He will miserably destroy those wicked men and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen which shall render him the fruits in their season. Amen. Amen. He destroyed the Jewish nation. He burned up their city and destroyed the murderers that hung him on the cross of Calvary who said his blood be on us and on our children and it was indeed. And he gave it to the Gentiles which is us And we have rendered him fruits of his vineyard for 2,000 years. And Jesus explains that to them. Verse 43, he said, The kingdom of God shall be taken from you. And you should at a verse like this think of the Apostle Paul in Acts 13 when he said to the Jews, Behold, you've judged yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. We turn to the Gentiles. And you know, we should shout and praise God that he turned to the Gentiles so that the gospel has come come to us. And in verse 44, the Lord Jesus said, Whosoever shall fall on this stone, speaking of himself, shall be broken. But on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. Verse 45, tell us the chief priests and Pharisees understood this parable and this prophecy that he was speaking about them. And sure enough, they were judged by the Lord Jesus Christ. Their city destroyed their temple tore down to the ground and 1.1 million died in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD by the Roman legions under the guidance and direction of Titus, the prince. Now we come to chapter 22 and Jesus answers and speaks unto them again. He has a little bit more to say to them than he had said in chapter 21. And he describes the kingdom of heaven as a certain king making a marriage for his son. That's God arranging the salvation of some people to be the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And he sends his prophets, those are his servants, in verses 3 and 4, to invite them to the wedding. And so the Jews were first invited. The, the gospel was first to the Jews. The Lord Jesus Christ had a very narrow ministry. He said, I am not sent, but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And the prophets before him had been to Israel. There was no other nation on earth that had the word of God and the oracles of God because they were given to the Jewish nation. And Jesus sent forth his servants, the prophets, then John the Baptist, then the apostles to call the Jews. But they made light of it, verse 5 tells us. They made light of it. And that's a horrible statement in the Bible. How often do we make light of the things of God? How many did the Super Bowl keep from the things of God last Lord's Day? They make light of it. They made light of it and went their ways. One to his farm, another to his merchandise, and another to the Super Bowl. Uh, I added that part, as you all well know. They made light of it. Verse 6, And the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. The Jews slew the prophets and the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth. And he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. That happened in 70 A.D. when Jesus sent the Roman armies and destroyed his adversaries that had hung him on the cross 40 years earlier when he was guiltless of all their charges and they could not make their accusations agree among themselves. He destroyed them. He had said, I will send enemies that will dig a ditch around this city and lay it even with the ground. Every stone in this temple will be pulled apart. And many other prophecies. And when we come to this point, 70 A.D. fulfills what has been given thus far. But then there's something else that happens. And it happened in chapter 21. The kingdom of God was taken from the Jews and given to the Gentiles. And the transition point is the book of Acts. During the time of Reformation, as the Bible describes it in Hebrews 9.10. And so in verse 8, Then saith he to his servants, These are his apostles and those that came from them. The wedding is ready. But they which were bidden were not worthy. Remember Paul? You have judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Lo, we turn to the Gentiles. And you know what it says in Acts 13? And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were ordained to eternal life, believed. Because God was giving the kingdom of heaven to the Gentiles. Praise His name. The wedding wedding is ready, but the first that were bidden were not worthy. Verse 9, you apostles... Go therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. And those are Gentiles of all kinds, all over the world. Thanks to his name, he sent Paul and others. Paul turned what the Roman world was upside down, preaching the gospel. He could say that he was free from the blood of all men in Asia. Now that's not the Asia we know, that's Asia Minor, a Roman province that today is the nation of Turkey. But still, one man... Without the internet, yes. He didn't internet, he didn't tweet, he didn't text, and he didn't email. But he turned the world upside down. And he was free from the blood of all men. Go into the highways and bid to the marriage. So those servants went out, the apostles, Timothy, and the other ministers that Paul, Titus, Timothy ordained. They went to the highways and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good. And that's what gets into every church. There are elect in every church, and there are non-elect in every church. There's good, and there's bad. There's the righteous, and there's the wicked. And the wedding was furnished. But when the king came, verse 11, that's got to be the day of judgment, when the king's going to examine everyone before the marriage supper of the Lamb can be completed. He saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment, and he saith unto him, Friend, How camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the wicked are going to be speechless before the Lord Jesus Christ, except they will confess that he is Lord, the glory of God the Father. And they're going to do it from their knees. 
Then said the king to the servants, the angels of heaven, bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Many get called by the gospel to come into the churches of Jesus Christ, but they're not all chosen. And brethren, here we have a great parable that has a midpoint of 70 A.D., with things Jewish on the left-hand side of this timeline and things Gentile on the right-hand side of the timeline. And we have four things listed here. The time of the Gentiles, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the King coming, and the day of judgment. So here we have a parable that shows, yes, there were some things fulfilled in 70 A.D., but the large things that belong to the Gentiles are yet in the future. And so we bless God and thank Him for this passage. Let's turn to Second Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3, where our beloved brother Peter seeks to stir up the pure minds of his readers by way of remembrance that they would be mindful of things that had been promised about the second coming of Jesus Christ. There were scoffers that would arise, not in Peter's day, but in our day scoffers that say, where's the promise of His coming? Jesus promised He would come. The the holy prophet said He would come. The apostles said He would come. Where is His coming? And we saw that when they say that nothing has changed from the foundation of the world, they're wrong. Because Peter reminds them in verses 5 and 6 of the flood that came and took everyone away. There already was a day of judgment in this world. And God destroyed every living soul of man except for eight that were in the ark. And then he explains in verse 7 that the heavens and the earth are kept in storage right now by the power of the Word of God being reserved to the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men when He shall burn up the heavens and the earth with flaming fire and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. We are given an explanation here as to why things don't happen as fast as we wish they would. Verse 8 tells us that in the Lord's timing perspective, a thousand years is as one day, and one day is as a thousand years. In verse 9, we're told why the Lord delays His coming, in that He's long-suffering. And in that He's long-suffering, we ought to use that long-suffering to prepare ourselves to meet Him. Long-suffering is a wonderful thing. How many times in your life Have you foolishly sinned against the God of heaven and judgment did not immediately fall upon you? How many times? Every day, countless. His long-suffering is a very real thing. He is the one that said, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. He judges. His eyes behold the evil and the good. He sees the secret things of our hearts. And yet His long-suffering is over us and around us and upon us all the time. Let us be so thankful that when we get into this passage, and here's a little play on words that I want to give you from our King James Bible. Look at verse 9. It says, The Lord is not slack. He's not a slacker, as some men count slackness. Notice, some men count God to be a slacker or a procrastinator because they say, The prophets and Jesus and the apostles said that Jesus was coming quickly, that Jesus was coming shortly, that Jesus' coming was at hand. So they count him a slacker because he hasn't come in the time frame that they think. But what are believers supposed to do? It's in verse 15. And account. We should have our own accounting when we look at the Word of God and account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. The fact that he takes longer than soon, at hand, or quickly might indicate to us is for our benefit, brethren. And let's account him one merciful and long-suffering God. When Moses told the Lord, show me your glory, back in Exodus 32 through 34, show me your glory. I mean, Moses just wanted to see the glory of God. He had seen the pillar of fire for For days and months and years, he wanted to see the glory of God. And God said, no man can see my glory and survive. I want to see your glory. 
Okay, I'm going to hide you in a secret place, and I'm going to show you my backside. Because that's all you can handle, Moses, is my backside. Because the glory of God is too much for us. And so when Moses saw the glory of God, he heard a loud voice declaring the glory of God, and it included the Lord, the Lord, merciful and long-suffering. That is the glory of God, that He hasn't consumed me. I should have been consumed. I will tell anyone at any time, I don't deserve to be alive. I don't deserve to have a wife. I don't deserve to have children. The Lord should have struck me dead. But He's long-suffering. Praise His glorious name. We know that the new heavens and the new earth are yet to come. We know that the resurrection is yet to come because we know that the day of judgment has to come, which is specified in verse 7. Verse 7 includes the day of judgment. It includes the, the burning up of this earth and this heaven, which requires the resurrection of the dead. And the whole passage is about the second coming of Jesus Christ because it's mentioned in verse 4. So the four great events that are yet to come, that the preterists say are all past, this passage tells us they are yet future, and we know they're future because this earthen world has existed since the flood and has not been yet burned up. That gets us through five arguments against preterism. The gospel denies preterism. Their timing texts are fallacies. Daniel 7 refuted preterism. Paul refuted preterism in 2 Thessalonians 2, and Peter refuted preterism right here in 2 Peter chapter 3. Now we go to number 6, and I'm just going to spend a little bit of time on each of a few remaining arguments. Preterism is refuted by Roman Catholicism, is argument number 6, that the Lord has led me in organizing this rebuttal to preterism. Roman Catholicism is Bible Christianity's greatest enemy. And any prophetic scheme that has no place or warning of this devilish fiend hiding under the cloak of apostolic authority and pretending to be a church of Jesus Christ is a bankrupt scheme of prophetic interpretation. If you have prophecies that don't include Roman Catholic Church somewhere, you're wrong. And preterism has no place for the Roman Catholic Church whatsoever because they put everything on the other side of 70 A.D. The futurism of Tim LaHaye and all Jack Van Empey and all those kinds of guys, they're just as wrong because they put all Bible prophecies out in the future and they have no place for the popes of Rome that have persecuted and made war against the saints of God for the 1260 years of the Dark Ages. They're abominable in their inventions against the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, when John, in his old age, saw the revelation in Revelation chapter 17 of a great whore with a golden cup in her hand, that's the chalice of the Catholic Church, riding upon the Roman Empire into power in the beast, and he wondered with great admiration. John wouldn't have wondered about any Jew or Jewish enemy. He had faced them his whole life. He wouldn't have wondered about any pagan Roman enemy. He had faced them his whole life. He saw something that startled him because in the Bible, a woman is a picture of a church. A great whore. A whorish church that fornicates with the world and fornicates with the kings of the world. And the Roman Catholic Church has done that from the beginning. When our presidents go to Rome or when our presidents receive a pope, it should turn our stomachs. It turns our fathers in the grave because they're under the throne of God having given their lives against that enemy. And the martyrs are crying out, How long? How long until you revenge our blood upon them on the earth? And the Roman Catholicism has shed more blood than any enemy of the saints of God. Roman Catholicism is Bible Christianity's greatest enemy. This King James Bible, when King James authorized it to be translated in 1604, remember, shortly thereafter was the gunpowder plot of England, and Guy Fawkes was discovered under the Houses of Parliament 
with 30 barrels of gunpowder, he was going to blow all of Parliament and the king and his family to smithereens. But God delivered the king the night before it happened. And delivered the king so that we got our King James Bible. And in this King James Bible, the translators write a blessing in the front of it. I hope you have it in your King James Bibles. To the Most High and Mighty Prince James, by the grace of God, King of Britain, France, and Ireland, Defender of the Faith. The translators of the Bible wish grace, mercy, and peace through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then they go on to describe that the translators understood that this Bible was going to be a blow against the man of sin, whom we understand to be the popes of Rome and the Roman Catholic Church, that it would never recover from. And it has never recovered from the power that it once held before the King James Bible when men were burned at the stake and Bloody Mary, the Catholic Queen of England, killed Christians, even her relatives, that would not deny our faith and would not accept Roman Catholic faith. It's right here. Now I know that's not an inspired part of your Bible, but it's just the most interesting fact. And the Bible says that here is wisdom. The man that can figure out that much of Revelation has to do with the Roman Catholic beast, the Roman beast with the great whore riding upon it, has wisdom. And when I read translators that were able to figure out who the real enemy of Christianity was, it was another Christian church and would bless King James for having authorized this version of the Bible and say, you have dealt a blow to the man of sin that he shall not recover from. And we thank God for that. And that's right along with what I'm trying to say to you, that one of the arguments against preterism is that in their great care to put so much attention upon Nero, what did Nero ever do? Did he raise a persecution against Christians for three years or so? Sure he did. Big deal. So did other Roman Caesars and Roman emperors. But who made war against the saints of God for 1260 years and wore them out, is what the Bible says, and prevailed against them? Our brethren had to run and hide in caves and woods and mountains of various parts of this world to survive that little man in the white pajamas coming after them by his Jesuits and by his priests and by his influence on the secular governments of this world. Thank you, Lord. If a prophetic scheme does not deal with Roman Catholicism and have it as a part, they are wrong. It's a bankrupt scheme. There's much that could be said on this subject as time keeps racing on. Preterism was invented by a Jesuit. When the printing press came into existence at the creative hands of Johann Gutenberg, Bibles began to flood Europe for the first time. Printed Bibles. And when people got printed Bibles in their hands, it was easy to show them that the Pope was the enemy of the saints of God by Daniel 7, by 2 Thessalonians 2, by various chapters in Revelation that the, the doctrine of celibacy that you can't marry is found in 1 Timothy chapter 4, that abstaining from meats and not eating meat on Friday is found in 1 Timothy chapter 4, and countless other such inventions, all of a sudden the people of Europe, there was the smell of freedom in the air, the freedom provided by the liberty of God's Word. Amen. And they stood up against the church of Rome, and Rome began losing members by the droves. And so what did they do? They came up with a new scheme of prophetic interpretation that would get the heat off of Rome and off the popes as the man of sin, the Antichrist, and the enemy of the true saints of God by preterism, putting it all the way back into 70 A.D. We're talking about the 16th century right now, the 1500s and the 1600s. Or they devised a scheme of prophetic interpretation that put it all out in the future. Both of them were inventions of the Jesuits of the 16th and 17th centuries. Futurism, preterism. 
preterism, all prophecy is in the past. Roman Catholicism is not dealt with in the Bible. Futurism, everything is yet to happen. There's nothing in the Bible about Roman Catholicism. And here we are. We're looking at a ditch on the left hand. We're looking at a ditch on the right hand. And we're trying to go down the road of righteousness and the highway of truth. Looking for the crown in the road. Lord, we want the yellow line. Hold us in the middle of the road so that we stay away from the ditches on both sides. And if we stay in the middle of the road, we're going to find in the Bible that there's a lot said against Roman Catholicism. That great church that claims 1.1 billion members today, one-sixth of the earth's population, and says there is no salvation outside the Roman Catholic Church. There is no salvation outside the Roman pontiff, meaning the Pope, and all the inventions that they've brought up to corrupt the gospel. Those two schemes were invented. We stand in the middle with all our martyr brethren, our brethren, our brethren that were pulled apart, that were chained together and thrown into rivers because they said we believe in baptism by immersion. So the Catholics would chain them together and throw them into rivers to drown. Our women violated the hands of Roman Catholics and soldiers of nations directed to do so by Roman Catholics. Those brethren and so many more punishments so abominable to think about exacted against them are crying from the altar of God about this enemy. John didn't wonder with great admiration about someone as ridiculous as Nero, Vespasian, or Titus. John would have laughed. But he wondered with great admiration because he couldn't believe that the greatest enemy that was drunk with the blood of the saints was a Christian church. All roads lead to Rome, as I've tried to show you in the past. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 4. Yes, they do. All roads lead to Rome, because Daniel 7 leads to Rome. 2 Thessalonians 2 leads to Rome. 1 Timothy 4, where we're turning, leads to Rome. Revelation 12, 13, 17, 18 lead to Rome. There's a schematic on our website that shows you those chapters and more. And the common statements made in each one, there's a whole bunch of columns for those chapters, and the common statements among them proving all roads lead to Rome as the great enemy of the saints. In 1 Timothy 4, 6, and brethren, this verse is important to me. It's a pastoral epistle. I've shown you before, but I hope you'll appreciate its importance to me and that you'll allow me the liberty that I take sometimes in what I preach to you. The liberty I take all the time in what I preach to you. 1 Timothy 4, 6. This is Paul, the greatest apostle of the Gentiles to Timothy, his favorite ministerial student and a bishop of the church at Ephesus. If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine, whereunto thou hast attained. Timothy, you're a good minister, and you will continue to be a good minister if you will preach these things and put your hearers in remembrance of these things. So we need to ask, what things is Paul talking about? So we go back to verse 1 of 1 Timothy 4. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly. That means plainly. That means a child can figure this one out. That in the latter times, some shall depart from the faith. That is the apostolic faith. Giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Speaking lies in hypocrisy having their conscience seared with a hot iron. And here are two example doctrines of the devil by seducing spirits that are called lies and a departure from the faith. Here they, here we are, verse 3. Forbidding to marry. Who forbids their priests and nuns to marry? It's called celibacy. In order to take holy orders, which is one of their seven sacraments, which is to get into the ministry in the Roman Catholic Church, you have to take a vow of celibacy. 
you'll never have a wife. And if you're going to be a nun, you'll never have a husband. Celibacy. Forbidding to marry. Right here in the Bible. And if I'm a good minister, I preach this to you. My point being, there are no good ministers among the preterists. There can't be. They ignore Roman Catholicism, which has been the greatest enemy of the saints of God. The second example doctrine of these doctrines of devils is commanding to abstain from meats. And that is the Catholic doctrine that you can't eat meat during their so-called Lent. You don't eat meat on Fridays. You can have fish, but you can't have meat to a Catholic. What other church does that? What other nation does that? that says you can't eat meat and that you can't marry. It's Roman Catholicism, and I'm supposed to preach against it. And it's a great enemy of the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you have a prophetic scheme that ignores Rome, it's false. It's bankrupt. It's missing one of the great enemies. Why do you think these verses are in the Bible? Because someone in our church is tempted to Stop eating meat and not marry? You know, we're Americans. We're meat eaters like there's no tomorrow. And we love marriage. We just thank the Lord for our marriages. This verse isn't about us. This verse is about Roman Catholics as plain as it can possibly be. Do you know why Matthew 6, 7 says, Use not vain repetitions in praying? Is that because of the Methodists? No, that's because of the Catholics. I want you to know that your Bible that you hold in your hands is an anti-Catholic book. They hated it, and they tried to get rid of it. Do you know they made it a law that you could not own or read the Bible? Can you believe that? What kind of a religion is that? Did you know that their Mass was done until about 20 years ago? Maybe 30 years ago? In Latin? No one even understood what was going on in their church services. They would just wait to hear the words hocus pocus because when they heard hocus pocus, they knew that the cracker had just become God. That's what Catholics believe. Do you know why it says in Luke 11 and verses 27 and 28, yea, rather, blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. What is the context of that statement? The first Mariolater popped on the scene. The first one that wanted to pray a Hail Mary said, blessed is the womb that gave birth to you and the paps that you sucked. Oh, yes. Blessed are the breasts that Jesus sucked. A Mariolater was there wanting to pray Hail Mary. And so Jesus said, yea, rather, blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. Today, sitting in this room, are people that Jesus Christ, the Son of Mary, says are rather blessed than she was to be his mother. How's that? Isn't that wonderful doctrine? Why is it in the Bible, brethren? Is it in the Bible for Presbyterians? No, it's in the Bible for Catholics. Do you know how long I could go on this little string that I have here? In John chapter 20, verses 6 and 7, it says that when Peter and John went into the tomb where Jesus had been laid, they found the grave clothes folded up and laying in one place, and the napkin that was around his head folded up and laying in another place. What does that tell you about the Shroud of Turin? It's a fraud. We don't need scientific examination. All we need is John chapter 20, verses 6 and 7. That it wasn't one grave piece of cloth that covered the Lord Jesus Christ. There was a head cloth and there was a body cloth. Not that one piece that Catholics portray all over the place and pretend that it has an image of Jesus on it. Well, somebody painted that on it. Maybe the devil, since it's doctrines of devils and seducing spirits that are behind their religion. When Matthew 26 and verse 27 says, Drink ye all of it. Was that for our church? Whose church was that for? Drink ye all of it. They they haven't let their people have the wine for 1,500 years. All they can have is their cracker God. They can't have the wine. But Jesus said, drink y'all of it. All of you are to drink of it. What's that in the Bible for? When Matthew 6, 7 says that we're not to use vain repetitions, remember they carry a string of beads around 
and some those beads. Ten Hail Marys, then one Our Father. Ten Hail Marys, one Our Father. And they just keep doing that until they've prayed 155 prayers. And when they've, uh, it's 165 prayers. It's 150 Hail Marys and 15 to Our Father in heaven. Now they'll tell you, we don't worship Mary. Well, then why do you pray ten times as often to Mary as you do to Almighty God? They thumb those beads. And Jesus said, Use not vain repetitions, for a certain kind of people use them, thinking that by their much speaking they're going to be heard. What kind of people use them? The heathen. That's a King James Bible in Matthew 6 and verse 7. In 1 Corinthians 9, 5, when the Apostle Paul told the Corinthians... Can't I lead about a wife like Cephas? What is that telling you? Who is Cephas? Peter. So Peter had a wife. They claim Peter is the first pope. But Peter had a wife? When none of their popes can have wives? I guess Peter wasn't a very good Catholic. Unbelievable. It's unbelievable, brethren. Matthew 23, 5. Jesus condemned enlarging the borders of your garments so that you would be noticed in public as a holy person. What have Catholics done for 1,500 years but wear their black clothing backward? You know, they wear their suits, their, their garments in public to be noticed as Catholic priests and Catholic nuns when Jesus preached against it. And brethren, I could go on and on. The Bible does use the term Queen of Heaven. But it doesn't use the term Queen of Heaven for Mary. It uses the term Queen of Heaven for an idolatrous feminine goddess of the Old Testament that the prophet Jeremiah blasted in the 44th chapter. The Bible is an anti-Catholic book. I have just scratched the surface. If you'll come back on Wednesday night, by God's grace, we'll fill your bellies, then I'm going to fill your minds, and if we have a little bit of holy laughter, we'll have a PowerPoint presentation, and I'll show you some more of these examples to show you how anti-Christian a Christian church called Rome actually is. Matthew 23, 9 condemns calling any man father on earth. What do you have to call every priest? What do you have to call bishops, archbishops, cardinals? And what do you have to call the Pope? Well, he's not just Father Benedict. He is most holy, reverend Father. How's that for sickness? I only know of one being that should be called reverend, and it certainly isn't your pastor. It is God of heaven. Holy and reverend is his name. My name? Are you kidding? It's not even close. Look at the Bible. It's an anti-Catholic book. No wonder they wanted to bring gunpowder under Parliament. If you don't know what I'm talking about, about the gunpowder plot, go punch in the words gunpowder plot into a Google search box and you'll be able to read about the Catholics trying to get rid of King James. And guess what we got? We got a sword of the Spirit that is slashed and cut the Catholics of Rome by pure doctrine and by the Word of God. Thank you, Lord. That's argument number six. Preterism is refuted by its total lack of anything, any role, any statement for Roman Catholicism because it proves that it must have been invented by them, for them, to protect them. Because the Bible's too plain and too full of information about the greatest enemy that the true saints of Jesus Christ would ever face. Preterism is refuted by history. No one in church history, regardless of where you look, believed the incredible leaps of preterists to force every prophecy into 70 A.D. Christianity has always included Christ's return, a visible, physical, literal return, just like He went into heaven, because that's what the angels told the apostles in Acts chapter 1. What, why are you gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus which has been taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. We believe that. It's always been believed. No creed or confession of any church or churches at any time included preterist doctrine. While we do not measure the truth of the gospel by church history, and we don't, 
Nevertheless, it's a prudent check, and it reminds us that history condemns them as being entirely novel and radical against apostolic religion. What may appear to be historical exceptions to this rule were partial preterists if you study them, not full preterists that deny everything. First century history does not mention the Lord's return, a bodily resurrection, a day of judgment, the universe renovated, or anything like that. So history denies preterism because when we look into history, none of these events happen in the first century. Preterists declare loudly how God raised up Josephus to confirm Jerusalem's destruction. They'll use the historian Eusebius to confirm that many of the saints left Jerusalem and fled to the mountains, just like Jesus had told them to do so, to be saved. But why so much silence for a long list of events that even individually considered are far greater than the destruction of Jerusalem? Total silence. Why total silence from John, Polycarp, Irenaeus, Clement of Rome, Eusebius, and others? Why didn't Josephus talk about the resurrection of all the dead bodies? Because it didn't happen. Why didn't he talk about the Lord Jesus Christ descending from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel? Because it didn't happen. History denies them. Preterisms refuted by the Gentiles. There were more than Jews living in 70 AD. They might have been 1% of the earth's population living in Judea and Jerusalem. If the Jews were only 1% of the population, the profound events prophesied in the Bible didn't happen to the other 99%. So what kind of worldwide events were they? How was it the day of judgment when only the Jews had to answer to the Lord? Jerusalem's destruction was not a major event to Gentiles. It happened fast enough with only a few legions involved that most of the Gentile world gave it little thought. There was little initial effect or lasting effect. How did it change the life of a Gentile? What happened in Jerusalem in 70 AD? It didn't change the life of a Gentile. So we know that there was these great events that the Bible describes did not take place because the Gentiles were not affected by what took place in Jerusalem. Most New Testament epistles were for Gentiles. Paul, the author of them, was the apostle of the Gentiles and ministered to them. But he doesn't even refer to the destruction of Jerusalem except in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Preterism denies that we're even relevant in the plans of God. But we're not relevant because the gospel was taken from the Jews and given to the Gentiles. And you know there's more epistles written to us than there are to Jews in the New Testament because Paul was the apostle of the Gentiles and he magnified his office. Yes, he did, and we're thankful for him. When did Jesus judge all the nations as sheep or goats? In Matthew 25, it says King Jesus is going to sit on his throne, and before him shall be gathered all nations, and he will separate them, the one from another, as a shepherd separates goats from sheep. When did that take place? That didn't happen in 70 A.D. Those were all Jews inside those city walls. When were the nations of the world judged? That judgment is yet to come. Matthew 25, and that judgment is yet to come. It's still future. What did Jesus mean by a day of judgment for Gentile cities? Look at Matthew chapter 10. Look at Matthew chapter 10. In Matthew chapter 10, in verse 15, the Lord Jesus said, as He told His twelve to go forth and preach the gospel. This is in verse 5 where he commands them to go preach and he tells them not to preach the Gentiles, not to enter into the cities of the Samaritans, but in verse 6 to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And he goes on and describes how they were to prepare and how they were to act while they were out preaching. In verse 15, Verily I say unto you, It shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. What city? This is, would be a city that did not receive the apostles well. It's described in verse 14. Whosoever shall not receive you, nor hear your words, when ye depart out of that house or city, shake off the dust of your feet. Verily I say unto you, 
it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. When have cities that received the apostles or did not receive the apostles, when were they judged along with the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah in a day of judgment? When was that event? It's not yet. That's plain enough, isn't it? They're so wrong. But brethren, preterism reached its ugly tentacles into our church and took a brother captive. And so I want to remind you and put you in mind of these things so that we remain steadfast in the truth. There is a huge event yet to come. And it's described right there. In the day of judgment... Look at Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, when Paul's on Mars Hill with the Greek philosophers in the city of Athens. What does he have to say to them? He warns them of an event that has not yet come. He didn't tell them anything about what was going to happen in 70 AD to Jerusalem. He told them something that was going to happen to them. Acts 17 Let's get verse 30. And the times of this ignorance. You Greeks think you're wise because you're philosophers. You don't know anything. He's already, he's already condemned them for having an, an altar to the unknown God and being that confused. And he calls them ignorance. Verse 30. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. The Lord Jesus Christ being raised from the dead and being made king over the universe all angels and principalities and powers being made subject to him is proof that he is a reigning king with the authority to judge and he's going to judge the world in an appointed day. And he told this to the Athenians who were a thousand miles across the Mediterranean Sea in Athens, Greece. It had nothing to do with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. And though that be a terrible event, there is a much greater event coming, and it's described right here. Preterism is refuted by the Gentiles, because the Gentiles are going to have their day of judgment as well, and it's going to involve the whole world, all the dead and all the living, because Jesus Christ is the judge of the quick and the dead. That's those alive, and that's those dead. That didn't happen in the destruction of Jerusalem. That was only those living, and they became dead. But Jesus is going to judge the quick and the dead. Preterism refutes itself. Look at the doctrine of baptism. These hypocrites will be baptized, and will encourage others to be baptized, even though baptism is a powerful picture of the coming resurrection of the dead. Now, if you put the resurrection of the dead back in 70 A.D. and you're being baptized in 2012, then preterist friend, you're a hypocrite and a liar. Because baptism is a picture of the resurrection. And you don't believe that there's a resurrection of dead bodies. So why are you being baptized? Preterism refutes itself by the Lord's Supper. You know, they say the Lord Jesus Christ came in 70 A.D. But when we take the Lord's Supper and we use the words of our King James Bible, it says, For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till He come. Because He hasn't come yet. So they shouldn't take the Lord's Supper. So if you're going to be a consistent full preterist, you shouldn't get baptized. You shouldn't take the Lord's Supper and you're not married. Look at Matthew chapter 22. And I'm thankful to a couple brothers in this church. They both climbed trees that came to me with this little one. They got so excited the first Sunday I began preaching against preterism because they could see that it refuted itself in the pages of Scripture. 
Look at Matthew chapter 22, and you read this last night in your preparatory reading. Verse 30, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage. So there's no more marriage. They say the resurrection took place in 70 A.D. Well, we're on the other side of the resurrection. We neither marry nor are given in marriage. I free you all this day from your marriages. Preterism refutes itself. It's ridiculous. They want to get married as much as any man does. It doesn't matter whether you believe preterism is true or not, because after all, there's no judgment where you're going to have to give an account of yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ. So just blow them off. Nothing bad can happen to you. Why do pre? You understand that? The day of judgment's already passed, so who cares what we do with it? Why do preterists die? The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death, and it will be destroyed at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, they say Jesus Christ came in 70 A.D. I wonder why those preterists don't have a longer life expectancy than the rest of us. Because Jesus didn't come in 70 A.D. Why do preterists labor? Why do they get up in the morning and do anything for the Lord since 1 Corinthians 15.58 tells us that our labor is not in vain in the Lord because of the resurrection of the dead. But if the resurrection of the dead has already happened and they're not resurrected, then why do they labor? Because there's no reward for them. We have a reward. We know that if we give our lives in serving the Lord Jesus Christ and though death takes this body, My spirit is immediately with the Lord, and you lay my body in the grave. I'm going to have a reward, because God is going to raise my body from the dead, reunite it with my spirit in the great day that's coming, and I shall be forever with the Lord, body, soul, and spirit. Look at 2 Timothy 2.2. 2 Timothy 2.2. This is about ministerial succession. This is how God has perpetuated His truth in the earth by one minister committing the things that were committed to him to another man who in turn commits them to another man and charges him to preach it faithfully. We, we call it ministerial succession in that one minister ordains another minister and so forth and that's happened since the Apostle Paul down to the present day. And here it is described in 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. The things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Paul preached publicly. Timothy was to take the things that he heard Paul preach publicly and commit to faithful men who would be able to teach others also. Four generations of preachers. Now, if the whole New Testament was fulfilled in 70 A.D., would you tell me what there is left to preach? Because the second generation would have lived through 70 A.D. Paul was killed in 67 A.D., but Timothy would have survived it. What was there left to commit to anyone? All the prophecies that the Apostle Paul gives, that Peter gives, that the Lord Jesus Christ gave, what is there to commit? The same The very same things that Paul taught were to be taught by his ministerial successors. Because those events have not yet happened. Preterism is refuted by the Scriptures. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, which where you're already at, but come over to verse 15. This is a verse that children memorize. I'm so thankful my parents taught me this verse when I was very young. It's so important to a minister, and it's important to all of us. Second right. Timothy 2.15 Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. Here is the rule for getting God's approval as a minister. And so that you are not shamed by falling into a false doctrine. Here's the rule. Rightly dividing the word of truth. 
Now, of course, all the new translations of the Bible don't say it that way. They corrupt this verse. This verse is so important to understanding the Bible because there are going to be words and concepts in the Bible that look the same, sound the same, but are two different things. The Lord Jesus Christ had a human nature and He had a divine nature. And you better separate them or you're going to get in serious trouble. Do you know that we have recently encountered some that believe that Jesus had an eternal human body? That's ridiculous. He got His human body out of the womb of Mary the Virgin by the overpowering of the Holy Ghost upon her. And so on. We can go through the Bible and see this over and over. James chapter 1 says, God tempteth no man. Genesis 22 says, God tempted Abraham. Well, you got to rightly divide those two. God doesn't infuse a lust in our hearts for sin, but He sure may bring along some circumstances that will put us to the test. And His circumstances for Abraham were, offer your son Isaac as a burnt offering to me. He didn't put anything in his heart, but I don't need to explain all that to you. And so we rightly divide the word of truth. If preterists would rightly divide the word of truth, they would see that there were things that happened in 70 A.D., and they would see that there are things yet to happen, and they would divide the two and not end up in the false doctrine of jamming them all into 70 A.D. Now, I want to remind you, because it is my job to make you remember these things. This verse, this rule, is where preterism, is the rule that preterism violates the most. And notice the context of this rule. Let's get verse 14. Of these things, put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord that they strive not about words, like at hand, shortly and quickly, to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Timothy, separate those things that ought to be separated, but shun profane and vain babblings. For they will increase unto more ungodliness, and their word will eat as doth a canker, of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some. Notice that this rule of rightly dividing the word of truth is given in context of the first two preterists, Hymenaeus and Philetus that said the resurrection is past already. That's where we have that rule. Preterism is refuted by the Scripture and the way they handle it. Or I should say, mishandle it. You know, preterism denies its own hermeneutic. Hermeneutic is the word for the science of Bible interpretation. No one yells louder and no one yells longer about taking the plain and literal meanings of words than the preterists do. A preterist will demand that you take the words at hand and quickly in their most obvious, most simplistic meaning. But watch them in Romans 8 with the whole creation being delivered into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Watch them in 1 Corinthians 15 where a whole chapter is about the resurrection of the dead. Or watch them in 2 Peter chapter 3 about the old heavens and earth burning up and there being a new heavens and a new earth. You've never seen someone spiritualize and mysticize the Bible in your life. Preterism is refuted by the Scriptures. It's refuted by futurism. I'm thankful that futurists at least know that Lord Jesus Christ is coming again, visibly and physically, that there's going to be a resurrection of dead bodies, that all men will be judged, and that there will be a new heavens and a new earth. They may get the timing mixed up, and they certainly do. But at least they admit those four things which are fundamental to Bible Christianity, but preterism denies them. Preterism is anti-Christian heresy. And we're going to close with Hebrews 6. Hebrews chapter 6. It was invented by the Antichrist. Jesuits wrote the first commentary on Revelation that taught such a ridiculous thing. And Hebrews chapter 6 is going to deny them as Christians. Paul called the doctrine of Hymenaeus and Philetus profane and vain babblings that overthrows the faith. 
not hurts the faith, but overthrows it because it's contrary to the faith of the gospel. Here we go. Hebrews 6.1 Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, there should be some things that we don't need much reminding about because they're so simple and so basic we should never forget them. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection. Not laying again the foundation, and here are some of these basic things we should never forget. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works. We need to repent of all our dead works in order to call upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be converted. And of faith toward God, we are to repent of our sins and then believe the Lord Jesus Christ of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this will we do if God permit. In these verses, the Apostle Paul identifies six points of doctrine that are principles of the doctrine of Christ. These are essential rules and axioms of truth of Christianity. And the last two are the resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment, and preterists deny them both, and so denying them, they deny that they're true Christians. Because to be a Christian, you must admit those, and futurists admit those. And though I have preached against futurism all my life, and I will continue to preach against futurism the rest of my life, they are different than preterists. In that they still maintain those great prophecies just out of order and all mixed up. Preterism is anti-Christian in that it sides with the Sadducees. Do you remember what the Apostle Paul did once when he was on trial before the Jews? He looked out in his audience and he realized half of these boys are Pharisees and half of these boys are Sadducees. And he says, as I start my speech, I want you to know that I'm a Pharisee and the son of a Pharisee. And I am called in question this day about the resurrection of the dead. And the crowd got into a, a war because the Sadducees deny the spirit and resurrection and the Pharisees admit both. So the Pharisees wanted to defend Paul. The Sadducees wanted to attack Paul. And where do the preterists go? They say, I'm a Sadducee and the son of a Sadducee. If you haven't gotten it, write me later. It's okay. There's no middle ground, brethren. If you're a preterist, you've denied basic facts of the Christian faith and must be rejected. You are either a Christian or a preterist, but you can't be both. And if you're a preterist, you're a heretic. And if you're a heretic, you are to be marked and avoided. And Hymenaeus was the first one that we find in the Bible. I would say with the Apostle Paul about these men, I would, they were even cut off. Galatians chapter 5 The Apostle Paul said that about the Jewish legalists. And that's what I think about these men that are overthrowing the faith of some by telling them that all these great promises and hopes of the gospel have been fulfilled in 70 A.D. Did I say that Hebrews 6 was the last passage I was going to turn to? I didn't mean it. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. I'm sorry, and I shouldn't say it that way. I did mean it then. I don't mean it now. Amen. Just just a moment in Second Peter 3. It's where we ended the first service, and it's where we should end this service. If the Lord Jesus Christ is coming, if there's going to be a resurrection of the dead, if there's going to be a great day of judgment, and if there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth, and if... All the works in this world are going to be burned up and melt with fervent heat. And we believe that all these things are indeed yet future and yet approaching and yet sooner than they've ever been in the history of the world. And that is not a slight statement when I make it because Paul made it 2,000 years ago in Romans chapter 13. Now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. It's a lot nearer. We know the prophetic timetable of the 1260 years of the popes of Rome, and we are at the far end of the prophetic timeline. These events are about to take place. And because they're about to take place, verse 11 of Second Peter 3 
Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be? What are we going to live like this afternoon, tonight, and tomorrow if the Lord gives us breath? We ought to be living in all holy conversation and godliness. Our lifestyle should be holiness and godliness. Verse 12, we should be looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God. Verse 14, seeing that we look for such things, let us be diligent that we may be found of Him in peace without spot and blameless. Let's not let the world touch us. Let's not let there be any quarrels, grudges, or strifes among us. Let's be at peace. Let's be without spot. Let's be blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen.